Unorthodox with the Angry Behavior Analyst is a relief valve for stifled thoughts, theories, and opinions related to social science. Unorthodox is unfiltered, uncensored, and most importantly, uncancelable. The Angry Behavior Analyst is all triggers, no warnings. All right, well, today I have Meryl Winston here. We are reunited for Unorthodox because the two of us felt like we wanted to ruin everything together to make it a little less terrible. So here we are. Hi, Meryl. Hey, Kayla. Good to see you again. Good to see you. Good to see you. Usually I only see what you type. I assume you're there. Uh, It could be one of the AI bots. You never know. They're very good nowadays, but I doubt they're as funny, so... Um, uh, nobody is as funny as the original thing. So uh, no, and I, I think the AI bot would know to not use quite so many laughing cat emojis as, as well. <laughs> uh, but um, <laughs> they figured out that algorithm gives them away. So it's yeah. true. I wonder how long it'll take for them to catch on to the cats. <laughs> they're, they're my signature move. So you never yeah, they know. haven't made it there yet. We'll we'll see how long. We'll 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 keep our eyes peeled for that one. Meryl, we were talking this morning about logical we fallacies we and were. yeah, and how we see a lot of them running rampant. I hate to say in the field, so we'll just say generally in the culture. They, they do. They have to run rampant in the field because they run rampant in the culture and the culture mm-hmm. is in the field. So by the law of transitivity, uh, <laughs> it's not me. I didn't make the rules. Oh, no. Transitivity. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, we are, we, that's actually, that's kind of one of the problems in behavior analysis in general Mm -hmm. and, and probably all the sciences is that science exists within culture and bits, bits and pieces of one keep seeping into the other. Uh, infiltrate. Yeah, yeah, be, because uh, it, it, it's um, uh, the the ways that we misstep, the ways that we misthink, uh, the biases that we bring to the table as more or less fully formed humans. Uh, all of those biases we bring into the field with us. I mean, do people? I mean, it would be nice if we could, but it's not like that show, which I've been told is so fucking awesome, Severance. Um, it's not like that oh, show so Severance where, where when you go into behavior analysis, you leave your former life behind. You and you don't recognize anybody else. That's right. the thing about Severance, too, is it literally right. is two separate people. I, I actually don't understand how that would I, I, I don't either. Like, you know, there's another life, but you just step into the elevator and the next thing you know, you're stepping out of the elevator again, yeah. which is kind of like waking up, but um, <laughs> it's kind of that same thing, but no, but it, it, it's, um, it, it's a problem with language. Um, mm-hmm. It's a problem with culture and even the way we, that we use words and our logic, they all come from the culture and they go into behavior analysis because it's not like you go through some kind of um, uh, wire stripper when you go into behavior analysis and it just pulls off this plastic coating of biases. And right. uh, wh- now, what do they call it? It's actually one of the fallacies. It's called angelism. And angelism. I'm, probably, I'm probably guilty of it because this is what I shoot for. But I also <laughs> recognize I can't. No one can. Yeah. Angelism is like, 
I'm Spock. I'm so objective that uh-huh. none of my history or maleness or whiteness affects me. That's just yeah. nonsense. And that, that and I just read about that, and that's very interesting. It's called angelism. It's like, I'm above all this. I don't have biases. I don't see color. That's like the biggest load of bullshit that there ever was. And it's just like- I'm totally you're... objective about this very complex subject that I have an emotional connection to. I mean, you can certainly be more objective and more detached than somebody mm-hmm. else. And somebody else could certainly have uh, you know, more bias than you have, but like mm-hmm. no one is clean. And, and so, you know, that's the whole thing that it, it's not like, um, it's not like behavior analysis just exists in this, this pure scientific form and, yeah. and nothing invades it. <laughs> but no, it has to exist in a culture. And as we know, when we try to present it in its raw form to the culture, mm-hmm. it's unpalatable. Okay. Yeah, it's very undigestible. We have to make it into a Flintstone chewable, okay, <laughs> or, or or something like that. But that That's is a chance to work. Yeah. Um, by the way, I think that Flintstones chewables are one of the number one things that uh, our children are poisoned by. Like they they eat the whole thing. So delicious. Parents warned: Flintstone chewables. And so yeah, but that don't. Yeah. You heard it here first. Mm-hmm. Okay, but uh, important distinction. It's an important distinction, yes. Um, but yeah, I, I I do think that um, I think a lot of these fallacies that you know we talked about, and I guess you could put it. I'll send you the link. I guess yeah. you could put it in the show notes, mm-hmm. like that the uh, the website where this um, um, logician he just uh, I guess he's a student or something or a professor. I'm not sure which, but it's just kind of a compendium of the modern, and that's kind of interesting. And he pointed that out the modern logical fallacies. Like he didn't do like the super archaic ones that would only make sense in a court of law or something like that. Yeah, He tried to use the ones, and this is why it's, I, I really liked that particular website I ran across. He didn't mm-hmm. just list the fallacies. He gave modern day examples of the fallacies. I appreciated so that, that too. That's what I really liked. And that really kind of brought home, oh, that's what that's called. And uh, oh, I'm guilty of that one. And, you know, because the mm-hmm. thing is, there's 164 of them, and that's not every single logical fallacy. Right. And everybody does some of them. They just don't realize they're doing it. But I think that it's a neat exercise to look at them and then ask yourself, okay, I got to be guilty of some of these. Which one am I guilty of and when do I do it? Because I think mm-hmm. it's important if you're going to be like a good thinker, a good arguer, even a good, um, uh, even a good, not a spokesperson, but even a good proponent or an advocate, even a good advocate, mm-hmm. you, you have to know if I'm advocating for like behavior analysis, yeah, though these techniques could be effective and mm-hmm. they are on a lot of people that don't know about them, don't yeah. realize what's being done. Okay. Mm-hmm. Or you're, you're using one of the logical fallacies that preys upon on what that person loves. It preys upon their biases, like confirmation of bias. So mm-hmm. you know, one of the things I was talking about earlier is that I suspect the really sharp politicians, they know exactly which one of these they're using when they use them. They mm-hmm. don't believe the things they say. They are specifically constructed by people that help them and speech makers to control behavior of the masses who are not looking Mm -hmm. for these Jedi mind tricks, which is what they are. 
all of these, now, then the, here's the difference. The politicians, many of them, who are the smarter ones, I believe, they are knowingly using these. Others, right. uh, other people who do not do this professionally, they are using mm-hmm. them because it got shaped up by the arguments of others. And they are mm-hmm. borrowing the fallacious logical arguments of others, not knowing what they are. And using them effectively, just like the politicians are. But here's the difference. The politician, in many of the cases, does not believe the logical fallacy that they just foisted upon the general population. They used They believe it that it's believable. It is a, what did they say? A believable lie. People will mm-hmm. accept a believable lie faster, more easily than an unbelievable truth. Right. Mm -hmm. And what they do is they craft these things using logical fallacies because they taste better that way. (laughs) And and people accept them. They go down smoothly. Again, it's like they're making it like a Flintstone chewable. It goes down smoothly. It seems to make sense. You know, mm-hmm. and if the field um, is not easily digested by people, then a Flintstone chewable is exactly what they're looking for because it requires no thought. It requires right. zero effort. Right, to- right. A Flintstone chewable doesn't require you to understand what are good nutrients and what foods do they come from and which ones yeah. should I eat. That, uh, so pop. that's kind of what, you know, you wouldn't need a Flintstone chewable if you knew all that shit. The fuck right. do you need a Flintstone chewable for? Uh, so, you know, or any other vitamin. Most doctors I talked to said they just make, they give you expensive urine. Oh. Uh, <laughs> that's, 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 what the, that's what the ones I've talked to said. Now, there, there are probably certain supplements. Like if you are a vegan, you don't eat any meat, you might need to take right. like B12. Okay, but other than that, you know, everything, you don't need a Flintstone chewable. But the point being right. that, uh, you know, it, it's a very difficult balancing act because we need to make, we want to make the science accessible to people, but, uh, and this is the problem of using analogies when you use them incorrectly. Analogies are very powerful and they're really good at controlling people's behavior. Mm-hmm. But if you choose one that really doesn't ring true and is not really a good analogy, it means the individual doesn't really learn the concept that well. They only yeah. learn it on a very, very surface level, right? And the thing is, no analogy is perfect. That's why they're analogies. They can never replace the actual, uh, the actual event, the actual mm-hmm. thing, right? Um, but if you choose, some people choose their analogies only because they look kind of similar and they're great at right. controlling behavior, but they're very poor analogies. And not only do they not help you further understand it, they obfuscate. So that's like the, did I tell you about the one about the watermelon in the cloud analogy? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, that's the same one. That's what the you know the the, the famous thing the preacher used arguing mm-hmm. with the, the the Darwinian theorist, right? And and because it sounded like it made great sense, but it was it was a poor analogy because the things are not comparable. They only for- the only thing they had in common were the percentages. Yeah, I forget which one was in here. I would have to look in this list of how many are there a hundred. There's like 164, but I pulled out like 20 that I thought that that were more invading the field than a lot of the ones which are just more personal arguments people use yeah. in an interpersonal fight. I, I pulled out some of the ones that that people use professionally, I think, a lot. 
One of them speaks to how we say things that are very fake deep, like love truly is blind. That's nothing profound, but we say it in this way to certain people tugging at their heartstrings so that it sounds that's like an like emotional, it, that's an emotional appeal. I think yeah, something like that. It, that, that happens it, very frequently. Um, it is. That's the whole thing. Like the, um, I see a, I see a future of the faces of smiling children. Yes. It's an emotional, it's emotional visual appeal that are used. Mm-hmm. And there may be no smiling children. We don't know what's going to happen. What are they smiling about? Uh, but, but <laughs> it conjures up emotion, conjures up emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's, um, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of, what do they call it? Like a dog whistle. Yeah. I, uh, I was just actually that offensive on that to one. canines. Uh, that, that, that is the, um, They're so inconsiderate. <laughs> it, it, it is, you know, cats like to be called too. Uh, yeah. but, uh, no, no, they don't. Well, actually they do. Cause they want to actively ignore it. So it exactly. gives them more power. Uh, mm-hmm. I was, I was looking for it. Um, oh yeah. Dog whistle politics. That's the extreme version of reductionism and sloganeering. I never heard that sloganeering. one. Sloganeering. Uh, and that is, um, there are things like um, big government, abortion, uh, chain migration, Islamic terrorism, things that like uh, they set off people's amygdala. So like you could just say the word and people are ready for an argument. <laughs> like, so like, like contingent I, electric skin shock. Uh, that would be another one that would have a big emotional reaction. Yeah, sure. That would be that would be another one. And it doesn't mean that that issue is a non-issue. It just means that if you're having a discussion about it, as soon as you say it, everybody's Mm -hmm. dander is up. You know, they're the hackles, Um, Mm -hmm. not their dandruff, their dander. (laughs) Uh, But, uh, but uh, yeah, maybe the dandruff too. I mean, stress can do that, but um, yeah, totally. uh, Another one. Um, Meryl, what about confirmation bias? That's, that's a big one. And you know what, we, we all suffer from that. Mm -hmm. And that's the whole you, you look for the thing specifically to support your, this is the, the, the most classic form, like in an argument or something, you look for only the thing that support your point, and you ignore or minimize everything else. And somebody that is running under like, big confirmation bias motivation. This is what I learned about this in graduate school and I couldn't get over it when they told me about it because I thought, man, that just sounds, that's just wrong. But it was called an advocacy style of research. I think I learned about it in Johnston and Pennypacker. And an mm. advocacy style of research is is kind of like, um, it fits it fits in with the notion of if you torture the data long enough, they will confess. Um. So this is, this is the idea that I'm hoping that this is true. I already think this is true. I am wanting this to be true. And I have invested a lot personally and professionally in this being true. And what happens is, is that it no longer becomes an interest of, I think Johnston and Pennypacker used to call it the true state of nature. That is, what is it? What is it out there and what is our interpretation and where are the differences? And, you know, where is this true state of nature, you know, which 
I mean, many believe like uh, in the sciences was found through mathematics because it wasn't polluted with our language and our culture. And four plus four is eight, no matter where you go. You know, nobody's like, no, no, here, four plus four is seven. Now, there may be something like that in a very remote region. I think there probably <laughs> is. But for the rest of the world, it's pretty equal. And it's, it's mm-hmm. here's the point. It's clean. You know, it, yeah. it, it's a bit cleaner. Not that people can't attach significance to numbers. People do. But mm-hmm. it, it, it's, a, it's a bit cleaner, a way cleaner than our language, which, as we were just talking, it gets invaded by concepts. It gets invaded by poor thinking. Like if there's if there's poor thinking in math, people can find it really fast, because yeah. and they'll say it doesn't add up. <laughs> I mean, they'll, literally, they'll find, that's what CPAs do. Okay, they 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 I, I, well they do. And my CPA, like he finds poor thinking. He goes, Meryl, you thought this was a deduction, it's right. not. And you thought this gets handled this way, it doesn't. This gets handled under not the federal column. And so it's like, see, because my thinking is wrong, all this there's all these other problems with the numbers, but the numbers themselves are clean. You know, that's hard with research too, though, because there are some statistical analyses that you could use that really bend the graphs to look the way that you would hope for them to look. So depending on the, the formula that you use, it's very easy to make research. I don't want to say make research, but make research fall (laughs) into the the category that you'd want it to. We've also seen, I mean, even so, Depend, people's biases are so strong, they can they can make data everything, or they can make it worthless. Yeah. So we've seen this with global warming. Mm-hmm. It's it's and now here's the argument. Um, and now it it becomes increasingly improbable as you go out. But if somebody shows you one set of data, then you can do ad hominem attacks. Mm-hmm. Well, data that's just data on paper. How good was the person who drew the data points? Well, that's mm-hmm. a valid argument. And people yeah. have fudged data before and gotten away with it for a long time before people found out they fudged it. Right. This has happened many times. Okay. And we know this, right? So, but what happens when this journal reproduces it and that lab reproduces it and that researcher, now you have to have a global conspiracy theory so you can still be right. So it right. just becomes more and more ridiculous, that argument of, mm-hmm. You know, well, that's actually one of the logical fallacies is that we'll never know. We'll never know the true answer. Like, you know, and I was like, okay, we're going to get as close as we can. And we're going to get as far away from, I don't think that's right as we possibly can. Right. <laughs> it's like, you know, I, but that's, that's science. You never get there. It just puts more distance between you and knowing nothing. Right. So, it starts as the know, null hypothesis for a reason. Right. Right. So, so uh, with with the with the fallacy where people say, "Well, we're never going to know," do you think that's because they're in pursuit of not finding the truth and making sure other people don't find it? I think maybe not the truth as they see it, but not not wanting something that's not on their agenda, at least. So the facts that don't align with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's confirmation bias. I mean, that all all over. It's you minimize all the other things. Uh, the other one that's used a lot, this is because of our rapid fire culture. And what do they call it? The, the, the uh, 48 hour news cycle, oh. you know? So like, so no, there's a big thing in the news. Yeah. And then what do, what do the spin doctors say? Wait 48 hours. 
Mm-hmm. I think now, now it's down the, to like 24 because well, of there you go. Because you, have, you don't have attention for it. Mm-hmm. I need the next catastrophe, please. Yeah, 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 yeah. Earthquake. Yeah, whatever. Well, next, I'm done with it. <laughs> it's well, that's that's part of um, the culture, but it's called availability bias, mm-hmm. and that uh, stems from the natural tendency to give undue attention, and all people tend to do this: undue right. attention and importance to information that's immediately available at hand particularly the first or last information received mm-hmm. and to minimize or ignore broader data historically and wider evidence. So, you know, like how has behavior analysis been used in great ways to help people get them That's independent, uh, get mm-hmm. them out of helmets, get them out of restraints, get them off medications. Nobody yeah. talks about or even thinks about or even asks about all of that behavior analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, that prevented injury, stop people from gouging their eyes out, stop people from hitting their heads so badly they detach their retinas. Where's mm-hmm. that? Those stories don't make it in the paper. Behavior analyst stops child from enucleating own eye. That's never, you'll never find that in the newspapers. No. Ever, 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 ever. Not because we're focused on the trivial details of the next best thing, or we're focused on trying to tear down what already is, or um, I think that I think people are a lot focused on perceived injustices. So, as an example, mm-hmm. like JRC, uh, mm-hmm. I think that is a big deal. I think the electric shock is a very big deal. I yeah. think it should not be taken lightly. I think there needs to be a lot of discussion about it. Um, but I also think this not to take anything away from this issue, which is going to be an issue for a while. And for those who just arrived on the scene, this has been an issue for a long time. This is not new. Now, here's another issue. And this one goes unnoticed. This is the issue of tens of thousands and thousands and thousands and probably hundreds of thousands of people not receiving good behavioral services that have behavior programs in their binder. They're in schools, they're in residential facilities, they're in group homes, and they're languishing. And they're all over the country, and they're not receiving treatment. And I know they're not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they're invisible. Happens, and this happen, and they are invisible. You know who else is invisible? The person who has hit their head 700 times um, getting behavioral treatment that mm-hmm. maybe wasn't working for them the person who has three-on-one staffing, the person who's going to have a one-on-one for the next rest of their natural life because they haven't learned to control themselves and they can't be out in public alone. Um, Those are all unnoticed. And all that invasion, all that invasion, helmets, Mm -hmm. uh, gears to stop you from, gear to stop you from biting, arm splints to stop you from hitting yourself, four-point restraint, medications, Mm -hmm. often multiple, multiple staff who must be within arm's reach of you. And these things I have witnessed in lawsuits and in just my experience consulting, these things go on for years and Mm -hmm. years and years and years, and they go completely unnoticed. And what I'm saying is people should be equally angry at mm-hmm. all of that as they should be with JRC. They right. don't even know about it. And, and, and guess what? The people seen by JRC is a fraction 
of mm -hmm. all human beings receiving behavioral services and all yeah. those people receiving behavioral services in so many instances are getting suboptimal services. Mm -hmm. And to me, I think more attention, not, not take attention off JRC. That's, that's still an issue. Right. We need to put more attention on all the, on all the quiet suffering, all the suffering that doesn't make it into the newspapers, all mm -hmm. the suffering that doesn't make it into lawsuits. And that's a lot of suffering, like a lot. an egregious amount of suffering. Mm -hmm. The suffering of behavior problems that go unabated, the suffering of invasion of your own privacy, not being able to walk wherever you want in public, yeah. all those little sufferings that people don't notice, they add up to people's lives being destroyed. Mm -hmm. You know, never, not even destroyed. They don't have a chance to have one. That's, they that's don't even one. know who they are. How could yeah. anybody know who they are without being surrounded by, you know, an entourage of therapists and, and restraint specialists and getting, and you have to worry about when you're going to be shot up with Ativan for and unconscious for the rest of the day. So if the JRC isn't necessarily a new issue, why does it feel new? Why do you think all of a sudden? Oh, I just, I, I don't, I don't know that it's all of a sudden. Well, I think just the current climate of social justice that mm. just, it's perfect for it. I think probably, yeah. but when I say also it's an old issue, I don't mean it's, when I say that, I don't mean it's unimportant. It's always been important yeah, to me. Of course. It's just nobody's ever done anything about it. The other thing is, I think, I think people forget about, it's not like nobody's been looking at this. There, the court has been involved with JRC forever. Matt Israel had to step down um, as the director. Things have been done because of this stuff going on. It hasn't been ignored. And the court doesn't look at like your behavior plan like they look at stuff at JRC. But that doesn't mean that everything's okay. And that doesn't mean it should be done. But right. it does mean it's very high profile. And you know, I think it should be, but I do think it takes a, attention away from the slow burn problems. Uh, see, yeah. the, the contingent skin shock is is the fast burn problem. That's that's the big thing that demands attention. But mm -hmm. I do worry a lot, um, and I think they don't get a fair shake. The people that are suffering quietly, mm -hmm. and and it is it is not an act of Sometimes it's not an act of commission. It's an act of omission. They're not getting the services they should be getting. Okay. I just had this yeah. discussion with someone that I'm doing consulting with in another state. And I will mention the state right now, but it's such that they're having such difficulty staffing the homes. They're not even, they're not even concerned so much about acquisition. They're concerned mm -hmm. about having humans in the home, which yeah. is a safety issue, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, it's, it's another example though, of people who I know are not getting services, uh, yeah. you know, and, uh, what about all the parents on wait lists? You know, these are, mm -hmm. these are, these are human beings suffering as well. And way more of them. It's just not as sensationalistic as skin shock. Um, and it's not. Which is sad that, that it would take something like a headline to for attention to be brought to these populations just because it isn't so much of a dramatic type of 
suffering. I hate to say romanticized type of suffering, but it is in a way I feel like where it's becoming, you know, we, we need to be uh, ref these, we have refugees at the JRC, but all of these slow burn people, they could be seen in the exact same way as you mentioned. Uh, I think so. I think, I think that um, they, they don't even have the benefit of the folks that of the, the clients of JRC of having a high profile. They don't have any profile at all. Yeah. You know, they're um, non-existent. Yeah. Basically. When I go into a classroom and I pull a behavior plan out of a binder and I look at the plan and I know it's not going to help anybody. And mm-hmm. even if it weren't just in this binder, but nobody's doing it and probably because it wouldn't have done good anyway. It's just, it's filling a gap that somebody said needs to be filled and that happens all over. And so yeah. these, this to me is it's, 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 in many ways worse because it's insidious. It's unseen. It's silent. You know, it's, uh, it's the blood pressure of behavior analysis. You know, people not getting treatment, not moving quickly, continuing to injure themselves. This is the silent killer. This is, this is high blood pressure. It's it. You don't notice it. Everything seems fine. They, they, They seem okay. They have a plan. The staff have been trained. Look, data. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but he's still doing it after five years. Yeah, what does that tell you? You know, and and so I think that that kind of is the high blood pressure uh, in our field. I think mm-hmm. JRC is the stroke in our field. Mm-hmm. You know, like if we're going to stick with the example. analogy, because it's it's kind of sudden. It's a it's big. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it's feels catastrophic. Um, you know, like a stroke. It mm-hmm. has major consequences. And the thing is, high blood pressure has consequences too, but they're long term. Mm-hmm. Things yeah. don't break down till later. It's mm-hmm. it's a continued, I know, I just got started on high blood pressure meds. It's the <laughs> continued stress on the artery day after day after day. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's why they call it the silent killer. Everything seems fine. You look fine. You seem yeah. healthy. You run. okay you know you do all the good stuff Mm -hmm. um that's why it's deceptive just like the people languishing in group homes is deceptive with everyone again to stick to your metaphor here if people are stroking out worrying about the jrc which again i should have prefaced with rightfully so we should be worried about the jrc but it's so much attention it's not not a small deal it's a big it's a big damn deal yeah. If so much of our attention and time is allocated to getting to 100% agreement on this contingent skin shock is- issue with, with JRC, how do we start to draw more attention to the, the silent languishers? I think it gets harder just because people are distracted. And so I think that, um, you know, I think it would just be, it, it, it's not, it doesn't have to be either or, certainly. Just like when people say, oh my God, it's 75% working with autism behavior analysis. Okay, we're not saying stop working with children with autism. <laughs> right. Sorry, Billy. That's Let's your last man. Let's cut it That's down to him. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to work in sports. Um, but uh, no, we're not, you know, I'm not saying that. And I'm not saying that for the JRC issue either. But yeah. what I what I am saying is I want people to recognize um, that, there is this silent suffering going on from people not getting the treatment they need to get from people continuing to injure themselves. And by the way, I'm not saying that electric shock would make you stop immediately. It may, or it may not. 
and it may or may not be worth it. And it, it may or may not, it, it, it may or may not have a risk benefit ratio that works for the parent or the consumer or for anyone, you know, I'm not, I'm not the one to say, but I, I think that people do have to be able to understand that risk takes many forms and there is immediate risk and there is long-term risk and humans are not very good at calculating long-term risk. Like we've gotten good at it. Like we have books mm-hmm. about it. Uh, insurance sure. companies use them. They're called actuarial tables and, and they know how often shit happens. Yeah. I mean, generally speaking, they're pretty good. Okay. Yeah. Statistics when used properly are very useful. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the insurance companies, health insurance companies, they all make use of, uh, of, you know, these data. Um, mm-hmm. I forgot where I was going with that, but, um, <laughs> Good thing we have insurance companies. That's all I was saying. No, um, exactly. Oh, you know what? You actually brought up a good point. I saw this. Uh, I saw this come up recently. Insurance, as it pertains to the medical model of disability versus the social model of disability, because now there's this idea that the social model of disability considers disability to be a social construct, and obviously, insurance doesn't cover for social constructs. You're looking at me like, what is happening with this? Yeah, have kind of heard I, I, I haven't heard this argument. Yet. Okay, no, I have not. The the argument essentially states that mm-hmm. the medical model looks to purge disabled people and fix all of their wrongs and dysfunctions and impairments. So it, it aims to correct illnesses the same way medicine would. That's why medicine was developed. Disability activists find take issue with that because they feel like it doesn't look enough at their personal experience and the social model embraces their disabilities and impairments versus makes an effort versus making an effort to change them. Um, I, I, I guess it depends what you say a disability is and what changing means. So if you consider not being able to communicate at all mm-hmm. a disability. Then first of all, the question is, why do you think it's a disability? Because, and I'm going to say this. So let's, let's take the most extreme example, changing a, a child who has no skills. Sure. Zero. Mm-hmm. And no communication. They scratch, they bite and they fight. Okay. Okay. Let's take the extreme example where Okay, they don't have a disability. They're just a person who doesn't talk and they they let their needs be known through scratching and biting and we should support that. Mm-hmm. I don't know of any parents who want to support scratching and biting as a mode of communication. They would rather that we force the child to change, that we arrange the environment. And if you don't like the word force, that we arrange the environment, okay, that induces the child to change. Either way, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna engage in heroic efforts to get the child to talk uh, or communicate in some form. And the main reason is to make their life better. Mm-hmm. All right. But now if you took the extreme form, let's take the extreme form. They're fine just the way they are. They are fine kicking and scratching and biting and not knowing how to get their needs met. 
and being a person, as Pat McGreevy likes to say, whose role in the world is one of hoping and waiting for stuff to happen because you can't make it happen. So maybe who are we to say, taking the extreme position, who are we to say that we should make you communicate? Mm -hmm. What if you don't want to communicate? What if you love not communicating? I've communicated with a bunch of people and trust me, I would have been much happier had I not communicated with them. So (laughs) a lot of people are feeling this way. That's why they all have dogs now. So, but we still talk to them, but we value that communication because they never give us any lift. So, uh, but you know what I mean though? I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. so in that extreme example, Mm -hmm. should we just support that child and accept now, I'm not talking about not just not talking, but should we accept their biting and scratching? And most people go, well, no, it it injures us. Okay. So should we just have, uh, should we just stop the biting and scratching and not teach them how to communicate? Because that'll change who they are. Because who they are right now is somebody who Mm -hmm. can't communicate and loves biting and scratching. Yeah. That's who they are. And, and I think part of the, part of the problem we see when people talk about, changing my disability is their disability is not as bad as other people's disability sometimes. So the person who says, I don't feel like I have a disability. Well, you certainly have less of one because you were able to say, I don't feel like I have a disability. The -hmm. children that I used to work with and the adults I used to work with, they couldn't say that. Right. They so they would have disability. no way, they would have no way of telling you, let's say that their disability was uh, an elemental piece of their identity. They would have no way Which of saying that. We, we would have to guess it. We mm-hmm. would have to, we would have to guess and say, maybe this is who you want to be. Maybe you like not communicating. Maybe you love not knowing how to make a peanut butter sandwich. Why, why should I make you into a person who prepares their own food. What if that's not who you are? Now, you know, the big difference is if you're talking about a parent and a very young child who has hopes for them for the future, and whether you're talking about a legally competent adult. See, here's the, the problem with this. People are, people are talking about two very different groups of people. Like, you know, one person can say like, well, I have autism. You're one group of per- people because you can say the words I have autism. That puts you in a very different group of people than this child who has autism and only knows how to bite and scratch. And in fact, it puts you in such a very different category. It's mind boggling because language makes so many differences. It does. Um, So, you know, just that alone, a lot of times Mm -hmm. people are having these arguments and they're only having these arguments about one part of a population because the other part of the population Is that who you're talking about when you're saying, okay, this person has a disability. They can't toilet themselves. They will soil themselves. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm going to take another extreme example. I'm just the kind of person that likes to crap my pants. I like the way it feels. And that's just who I am. It's stinky, but I'm used to it. And it keeps people away from me. And I don't like them anyway. Okay. Who are we? Who are we to to tell them they need to poop in the toilet. Okay. Now some people may be going, okay, now that's ridiculous. Is it? Yeah. Cause that's essentially days, what's being thrown around. Days, is it ridiculous or is it just another extension of what people are already saying? And where do you draw the line? Now, most mm-hmm. people draw the line at this. 
it's for their own good. That's why people make exceptions for mm-hmm. assent with medical emergencies. But right. see, that leaves the back door open to let's have a thorough discussion of the concept of for your own good. And let's have a thorough concept of who gets to decide what is for your own good. Because mm-hmm. what's for your own good might be being put in four-point restraint. Right. What's for your own good might be an invasive spinal tap, what, which I've had before and I highly don't recommend them. Um, so, it's yeah, you want to talk about bad headaches for a week after when you stand up. Ouch. Uh, well, basically, your brain goes right down on the brainstem because it doesn't float quite as well for about a week till the fluid builds up again. But anyway, I highly don't recommend them. Um, because the thing is a a lot of things like it's for your own good to learn to control yourself. It's for your own good to learn to stop at corners. You know, Mm -hmm. it's for your own good to respect authority. All these things are ultimately for your own good, Mm -hmm. you know? And so the question is who gets to draw the line and based on what? Because somebody might say, as an example, uh, when I used to work for PCMA, we had to restrain people. Mm-hmm. We did, I always tell the parents, look, we're not restraining them because we don't like them. We're not right. restraining them because they made us mad. Mm-hmm. We're restraining them for the good of everyone around them and for their own good because right. they will injure themselves. And most parents understood this just fine. And in that case, they understood what for your own good means. Yet for some people, they still believe it is not for their own good. It because is not it's invading them. their space. It's not necessary. Like, I, that's what I'm having a hard what time. What they're saying with. is, is that in my mind, I've done a risk benefit analysis, which they haven't, and it still doesn't work out. So what they're saying right. is no matter what, it should never be done. And then people would say, okay, but only in an emergency. It's like, that's the only time we do it. Exactly. We don't do it when they get the answer wrong on the math test. I mean, um, so yeah, this is just... Well, then it becomes like this definitional issue because then define emergency because now everything feels like an emergency. And that's like defining imminent. And what people do is um, here's uh, that's what this other logical fallacy is, which people do all the time. It's called equivocation. And that's Mm -hmm. a fallacy of deliberately failing to define one's terms. So like the Department of Education, the U.S. Department of Education, when they talked about guidelines for restraint, Mm -hmm. they said um, you, you shouldn't use restraint unless there is uh, imminent risk of serious bodily harm. They never, then they went on to not define what imminent means or what constitutes serious bodily harm, what right. is and what isn't and why. That's what's known as equivocation. And that's what politicians do. And that's what policy writers do. And that's what the Department of Education did when they introduced the term imminent Mm-hmm. And did not define it because imminent could mean any second now, or you could be talking more loosely like the imminent collapse of communism. Okay. <laughs> what you might mean is 30 years away, right? Sure. So imminent is used in all sorts of ways and it doesn't necessarily mean two seconds or two minutes. It's context-based. Okay. It's context-based. So if you don't say what it is, you're equivocating and you're leaving it up to people to decide. Mm-hmm. And so this, this happens all the time. People yeah. don't say what is what and what is not and who mm-hmm. gets to decide what is what. And the compassion, change of the goalpost happens. Huh? Yeah. Like compassion, compassion too. Yeah. Define compassion. How are mm-hmm. you using it? What is, what isn't, what was, what isn't now and why? Okay. And 
discriminate between compassion, sympathy, empathy. Okay, how are they different? Because they're related. Uh, and they're all concepts. None of them are things. They're all concepts that represent things. So empathy is a concept. Crying when your child cries is a thing. Oh. <laughs> uh, that's a thing. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then we label it. Oh, you have empathy for your child, right? Empathy is not a thing. Yeah. Feeling pain when someone you love feels pain. That's a thing. We call it empathy, but empathy is labeled on all kinds of other things. You know, that's my point. It's a concept. Yeah. Um, just like all the other concepts we talk about, compassion, yeah. fairness, everything. They're all concepts. Concepts that relate at one point referred to actual things, maybe still do. <laughs> Sometimes they don't. Uh, Sometimes you know. they're just there as placeholders. Do you think equivocation uh, it plays a part in this idea of you and me have also talked about ascent and ascent withdrawal? And there's, in my opinion, there's a lack of a definition because when I ask people, I get almost an entirely different definition each time of what. Then that means there's no consensus of it. And if there there isn't like, even if there is, you know, uh, um, this point has been made by others. Uh, You know, it's truth by agreement. Even if everybody agrees that not only does it not mean it's not that it not only does it not necessarily mean it's true. It also doesn't necessarily mean it's the best way. Right. So even if you're not talking about truth, maybe you're just talking about quality or efficiency or something like that. Just because everybody agrees this is the best way doesn't mean it is the best way. It mm-hmm. just means they're all of the same mindset, uh, you know, and uh, there's some good that comes out of when everybody agrees, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that it's correct or it doesn't mean right. it's the best, or it doesn't mean it's the most efficient or effective. It's like saving face has become more important than the actual... Truth sometimes, obviously not in every single situation. No, but- I mean, yeah, the, the truth is difficult, especially when it goes against a case you're trying to make. Yeah. And and especially if you think it tr- it hurts your case or hurts the people that you're trying to support. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. But I think I think we have to define our concepts because they, you know, we're behavior analysts working in a world full of concepts. And I mean, even reinforcement is a concept. Right. I mean, the thing is the person doing something and something happening. That's the thing. Okay. And the biology that goes along with it. That's the thing. And the neurochemistry that happens when you get your Skittle. That's the thing. But reinforcement is a concept. Yeah. You know, and so very different. Yeah. And, and so, and so is ascent, but reinforcement isn't even the thing. And ascent is not even universally uh, agreed upon. Yeah. Um, those kinds of things. I, I like to speak about, you know, cooperation and that I'd rather have personally, I'd rather have someone who's cooperative mm-hmm. generally. And then also here's the problem with this. Uh, one of the many problems with ascent. Ascent is, is um, it's, it's binary. Mm-hmm. Cooperation is, is a continuum. Like, did he give right. permission or didn't he? That's a good point. Okay. Cooperation is, you can be highly cooperative. You can be somewhat cooperative. You can be minimally cooperative. Okay. Like the kid draws, but he really doesn't put in an effort. Okay. Yeah. All right. But he cooperated. Um, he cooperated reluctantly. That's mm-hmm. a phrase. Did you? I cooperated, but reluctantly. 
Oh, but you cooperated. Yes. Okay. So there's all kinds of cooperation. Mm -hmm. See, so you can work with someone who is maximally cooperative, minimally cooperative, right? Or somewhere in the middle. And so uh, I would rather, and why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you have, rather have somebody that's maximally cooperative? We're talking about this. Like, I don't, I don't particularly feel like you need to formally go like, we're going to restrain you now, Bobby, <laughs> punching you in the face. There's no time for that. You don't need to do it. And he doesn't need to give permission. You're going to do it anyway. Right. Now, if it's something like, uh, now there's going to be other things that must stop. And I, and I, I don't ask the child's permission for it. It has to stop. But- right. I'm a firm believer in giving them a heads up. Hey, Bobby, <laughs> I'm going to have to turn off this computer in 10 minutes. I sure. have to do it for everybody. I right. just want to let you know. Okay. Yeah. And it's I'll not let you asking know them. It's not yeah. asking, hey, Bobby, do you mind if I turn the computer off? It's, hey, Bobby, I am turning this computer off. Right. It's, it, it's about, it's about, um, here's one of the things. It's great to have cooperation, mm-hmm. but I, you know, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to feel that I have to ask someone permission for every single thing I'm, I'm about to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, most of the children in school, they don't, they don't have anybody's permission to be there. Okay. <laughs> and it's not a safety issue and it's right. not a medical issue. Most of the kids, issue. <laughs> so many of the kids that I work with, they don't have a cent for them getting on the bus. Okay. If they were like, would you like to go to school? They'll be like, no, bitch. <laughs> and be like, okay, it's 186 day at home for Bobby. Um, I mean, yeah. Uh, <laughs> come on now. Uh, by the way, uh, we don't have a cent for everything done to us. Absolutely. I don't have a cent to being pulled over by law enforcement. They don't pull up alongside of my car and go, sir, we would like to pull you over, <laughs> but we need to get your permission first. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, th- there's just... Uh, again, uh, and by the way, just so people don't, you know, get the wrong impression. I'm not like my own personal style with kids that I've worked with is not, it's my way or the highway. I'm more of, of like Jim Partington's philosophy, which is we want our kids running to us, not mm-hmm. from us. Right. And if they're running from you to begin with, or you're having major problems with them doing things to begin with, then maybe things are a little bit backwards. Huh? Uh, uh-huh. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, be that as it may. There are some things that assent doesn't enter into. And I've read some things on some websites and stuff that like, oh, yeah, there's exceptions for, you know, things like car seats. Well, but why for that? Not something else. And here's the logic right. behind car seat. OK, mm-hmm. one, it's mandatory by the law. So right. even if the kid says, no, I don't want the car seat, mom, I'm five. I think I know what I'm doing. Okay. Even if they say that you have to, any, even if you agree with them, son, you're only five, but you're wise beyond your years. If it were up to me, I would just let you sit up in the front with me and get hit in the face by an airbag. But the law says that I have to do it. Right. So, but the thing is, you still don't have a cent. Was the child traumatized because they had to be put in the car seat? You know, um, the other thing is, I, I think people tend to forget, especially with getting permission on, on, so many things. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the many of the things of being a child, many of the, the downsides of being a kid is that yeah. you don't get to give assent on a whole bunch of stuff. See, yeah. you're what's known as a minor. Now, I know they use that word because you're a minor and you're not a legally competent adult. But part of the problem is that for children to make decisions on what they want to do or give permission, 
If mm-hmm. by the way, to give uh, it, like just like consent, if you give assent, yeah. doesn't it have to be informed assent? And how do you know mm-hmm. if the person's properly informed? What good is assent if they just say yes and you don't know if they know what they said yes to? So, or you don't even want to take the time to do it. But I think part of the greater problem that I see with some individuals, some families and their own kids is um, this wanting to have kids skip over childhood entirely and just be an adult where you get to make all the decisions and people Mm -hmm. ask permission first. And being a kid is, is very much about, not all about, but a large part of being a kid is being prepared to be launched into society where you have to do shit. You have to learn the rules to break the rules later, but you have to learn them first. You have to to learn all kinds of things. And you also have to learn sometimes there's things that a lot of things that them getting permission from you, that's not going to happen. And so to prepare them for society where you, there's a lot of things you won't have a cent for or consent. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, people say it. Well, I say like, well, I never gave my consent for mm-hmm. like having a stop at a red light at 3 a.m. when there's no traffic. And they'll go like, well, you did, Meryl, because you agreed to it when you got your license. And I'm like, no, man, they were coercing me because they told me if I don't abide by other laws, I can't have one. So the thing is, did Merrill really give his assent to stop at red lights? Like, am I really okay with it? No, I'm not okay with it. If it's 3 a.m., I think I should be able to go and treat it like a stop sign. I think it's fucking stupid. Okay? I'm just sitting there at 3 a.m. and there's like no traffic. I'm just like, isn't like sitting there. Right? Do it. Yeah. It's like walking all the way around all the barriers when you go through security when there's nobody there. You know, mm-hmm. like, really? You know, what's, what's the point? Anyway, Duck uh, under those. I didn't give permission for that. Um, they didn't yeah. specifically ask me, are you okay with paying taxes? Uh, oh, you know, <laughs> so I would say no, I would think, <laughs> but, but I mean, in fairness to people who are proponents of assent, um, I think I know where it comes from, I think, and I'm in agreement and I've seen, I've seen too many place. issues where kids are being, you know, uh, stuck in chairs and I look under the table and the trainer's legs are hooked around the child's chair. Um, and they're hooked around the child's chair so he won't scoot away from the table. So this yeah. is now this is not a problem of you didn't get a cent. This is a problem mm-hmm. of you have an unmotivated learner in general. Yeah. They don't want to mm-hmm. be there. There's right. someone else they'd rather be. You haven't assessed this properly, right? Because I mean, generally speaking, when you do a good assessment, you can get them to the table. They start to like sure. you. And if you have these skills and you can arrange these things. Right. Uh, but anyway. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think that, um, I would much to kind of bring it back in the ascent thing. I would much rather have like full cooperation of Mm -hmm. all learners, of all kids. You won't always get it though. And also there's times to not ask their permission for things. Like if there's a crisis, something like, I mean, it's a different thing. Also, um, the level of the, the child's level of functioning. We were talking about this in a team meeting when we're talking about, when is it reasonable to like, you know, lift a child who's not in crisis? Like, you know, you can't let them just sit there all for four days right. and, or even touch a child to move them. And I said, part of it, you're going to have to take into account is what's, what's their verbal skills like? What do they know about society? What do they know about the world? Because some people, when they're more sophisticated, they know to take mm-hmm. offense when someone touches them. Like mm-hmm. they'll say, get your damn hands off of me. Right. Someone with no language and no concept of who's allowed to touch you and who's not, 
Mm-hmm. That's that's more of a non-issue, but it becomes more of an issue mm-hmm. when people become more competent socially and with language, you know, because then they're more sensitive to other people touching them, other people getting their permission, fairness, stuff mm-hmm. like this, I think. Um, but, you know, people have to be old enough to get those concepts too. Well, because even if in regards to the whole ascent thing, even if we're talking about typically developing children, they're only grasping these very concrete concepts until they're probably 11 or 12 years old. And so even when they get to 11 or 12, they're not able to imagine the consequences of their own actions beyond something very immediate. So it's hard to say that they're capable of understanding whatever we're asking them to consent to let alone, yes, I consent to what Kayla asked me to do. There's no, like you said, there's no guarantee that they understand. So if we're just waiting for a verbal promise, then, then what's the purpose? And yeah. And I guess the main thing would be like, what's the function supposed to be and what's happening now that you think Mm -hmm. assent will fix. Now there's something that might be happening now. that's a problem. It -hmm. doesn't mean assent will fix it. There might be other things that might do a better job. Mm -hmm. So as an example, if you understood the child's motivation quite well, right. right? And you understood the kid quite well, why would you need a scent? You would already know what they like and what they hate, what's going to yeah. be an issue, what's not. Why would it matter? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, if you knew the child well, you would try and structure those things. And for those things that you knew, the child absolutely hated it, but it was something that had to be done for their own good, then right. a scent becomes a non issue, like getting an injection. Mm-hmm. Or getting restrained when you're out of control, right? Things or to having to leave the room when it's a fire drill, but no fire. Still got to do it, mm-hmm. right? Those kind, those kinds of things. Um, was there anything else we were okay. gonna? I don't, you know, Meryl, we covered a lot in that hour. Did Didn't you want to touch on? I think so. I don't know. Are there enough jokes in there? <laughs> I, I, I think maybe. I don't, I don't really know. And we made some points here or there. Yeah, yeah, and uh, put that if you'll uh, put that the reference for those fallacies in the liner notes. I'm sure people would like. I will. Them. They and, will absolutely uh, love those. And just so just so folks know, again, everybody does these. I saw several that I myself have used before, and I was like, oh shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but people use them, and you'll probably find ones that you've used, and I'm mm-hmm. sure that you will find ones that other people used on you. Uh, mm-hmm. And then you'll be all like, that sucks. <laughs> Uh, the question is, the question is, did they choose it in advance or were they Mm. not aware that they were using it? Could they tact it or did it get checked up? Detective Merrill on the scene. On the scene. Okay. (laughs) Merrill, thank you so much for this, this reunion that I've been looking forward to for what is it over a week now? And we'll probably go back to uh, messaging each other like crazy on Facebook right after this. (laughs) There you you go. Right. I was trying to think of a line from Rick and Morty. Like, uh, no, it was what what Morty said. Like, nothing means anything. Life is meaningless. We're not here for any reason. Let's just sit down and watch television. (laughs) It's like something like that. You know what, Meryl? I really like, we should leave that in to just remind us all how small our place is in this world and all of the, the luxury we, we look right, forward to. Out of the mouths of Mortys. Out of the mouths of Mortys. We'll see everyone next time for a subpar visit. <laughs> <laughs>